We have to continue, like we speak of this golden thread. That golden thread has to follow through from the beginning all the way through to their journey. And this needs to be holistic. It needs to be supportive. It needs to be engaging. They need to participate. We need to leave individuals with their dignity. We can't have them feeling like they're just a checkbox for them and they're just always triggered and traumatized. I'm Heather Venegas, and you're listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. Hi there. My name is Tristan Seichel, and I'm one of the co-hosts for King County Recovery Conversations, as well as the Advocacy and Programs Director for the Washington Recovery Alliance. You're listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. I am joined today by Javon Jones, the owner of Jones Community Solutions, a Black-owned small business and social enterprise founded in 2013, specializing in peer consultation. His organization currently provides BIPOC-led certified peer counselor trainings, a community diversion program through Jail Health Services, and is working towards expanding peer support statewide. Thank you so much, Siobhan, for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me, Tristan. All right. To get us started, can you tell me more about yourself and how you got into recovery? Um, well, I am a young guy from Pasadena, California. Um, and I had experienced a lot of trauma growing up in the Los Angeles basin. And my journey has led me to try to find recovery in different ways. And the best thing was for me to, I had to get far away from the trauma. And um, I got into recovery. I got into the work I'm doing in recovery kind of by accident. I was just really trying to help others not go through what I was going through. You said you got into recovery by accident. Could you uh, explore that a little bit more? What did that look like for you? Sure. Um, Well, we had our business. We were doing some work. Uh, I was handing out lifeline cell phones to the communities. We were working um, at that time. My wife and I were volunteering at the food banks. Um, I was working as a, a, a VISTA, AmeriCorps VISTA. And we were trying to just really be supportive in the communities, in the communities that we were a part of and we needed support as well. And during those times, we established a lot of the relationships with uh, individuals and businesses. And and we just, in the way that we needed support, we were trying to give it in return. We had the opportunity and the space to provide clothing, food cell phones, counseling, whatever it was, we did so. That's an awesome experience and just seems like an incredible opportunity to give back to your community. And it seems like that was the the beginning of your journey um, into recovery. So that's so beautiful to hear. Um, Now, thinking about the strengths there, I'm also wondering, you know, what were some of the challenges you faced in getting into recovery? I would say the challenges for me was the main challenge, two big challenges. One, is for me, I had to make the space between the trauma that was causing me to have to recover. Um, I'm constantly in recovery. Um, And finding someone more relatable to help uh, uh, the understandings and the the guidance that someone would give me from my experiences, that's very hard to find. Someone that could 
understand um, someone that's more relatable. And me being a person of color and the communities where I'm from, that's a very hard find. That's a very hard ask to find a professional to have that understanding. Yeah, it seems like uh, what you're really hitting on here is the the need for you know representation within these uh, behavioral health peer support uh, spaces, right? So that when you need help and you need support, you're getting help by people that look like you, that are from your community and can relate you know, to the unique um, circumstances that you find yourself in. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Right on. Um, what were some of the other challenges that you faced during that journey? I would say constantly being um, triggered and re-traumatized because in the, in the process of searching for that support and not finding the correct support, it's triggered. It's very traumatic to have to explain your story over and over again and still not receive the support you need. That just really re- triggers, re-traumatizes, and to go throughout my day and wake up to have to do it again, that's a that's more than a challenge. Um, it starts to mess with your with you mentally. And so there's all sorts of support that comes into play where you need housing, food, shelter, and now your psyche is being tested because you're not getting more correct support you need at the right time. Absolutely. I know in um, the recovery field, we talk a lot about the window of willingness for change, right? And so Mm -hmm. when you don't have those available support services available, you know, when you need that change, um, you know, for your community, you know, you're, you're lost, right? And that can uh, further exacerbate negative outcomes for communities that, that need more support, right? Um, So I really appreciate you, you touching on that. Well, you know, beyond anything else, what did you find was the most helpful in navigating through your recovery journey? I will say the most helpful thing and navigating for me was to eventually find um, a path for me to express what I had gone through. It wasn't an opportunity for me to find the correct support. It, It was an opportunity for me to express what I've been through. And having, having the chance to become, uh, my wife and I became certified peer counselors in 2015, and that had a lot of impact in the way that we were able to provide support and also receive it because we were now in a space where we can speak with uh, mental health professionals and explain what we needed and get the correct support, have relatable resources. And it was very important for us to be able to provide that in return. That's really interesting. Uh, I know you mentioned there that... Um that your wife is also a peer. So I, I'm curious, what, what's it like being uh, in you know, a relationship where you're both you know, peers and working in the space? What's that like? Well, it's interesting. We, can, we, we have the opportunity to understand each other more. We grew up together, so we've been knowing each other for quite some time. So we, can, we know what each other have been through in the past. So it's, it's, it's actually fun to see how we can support each other now that we know how. Yeah. And that and it, it's good for our um, for our relationship to understand what each other's went through and how we could support them because we don't have that outside of the home. So it it helps us also helps us kind of refine our skills when we provide that support outside to our other, you know, our clients, our who those we mentor and our apprentices and everything else, we and our employees, we we really want to model that. So we do a lot of practicing. That's awesome and very beautiful. I think that um, you got to, you know, grow and and cultivate um, that behavioral health recovery journey with somebody so close and special to you. Uh, that's awesome. 
you know, moving over a little bit um, or shifting over into the work that you do, I just would love to, to hear a little bit more about what led you to start Jones Community Solutions and, you know, kind of the, the work that you do over there. Sure. So we we at Jones Community Solutions, we, we're a training agency. We do a lot of consultations. We do training in trauma-informed care, uh, leadership trainings, um, motivational interviewing, trauma-informed care. We also have crisis prevention and intervention. I do a lot of legislative advocacy and forensic support because these are the things that got me involved because these are the things that I needed. This is, this is what my family needed. This is what my community needed the support. We have a lot of support and a lot of organizations that do work, but they stop at a certain point. And for example, what really got me involved with the forensic side was getting custody of my children. You know, I had to fight for custody of my older kids years ago. And I also had no support at that family reunification point. But they also have support up to court, after court, but not that part. And it was, that's the most important part. And they didn't have representation uh, of color as well. Um, so the things that I needed is, and was, was not getting, I, we had, my family had to be very creative in how we took care of ourselves. And we shared that with the community at whole because our community needs to take care of themselves as well. And we don't all have those services and a lot of things start and stop at certain points. And those are very important places where we really do need the support. It might work well in one community, but another community needs a different type of support. And when programming starts and stops, there's gaps. So we've been very, very focused on filling in those gaps, providing very intentional peer support and being directly focused on the services we provide and it also keeps us out of competition. I don't need to compete or compare with anyone. I just need to provide the correct services. And when services, there are so many gaps in services and so many needs are still not being met, you know, it's hard to imagine what exactly are we competing, right? Um, right. But at the same time, there's also, you know, a limit on the available grants and other funding. So thus the competition comes in, right? Right. Um, but what seems to be really missing in what you're saying here is a lacking of like a holistic approach to understanding somebody's recovery journey, right? That it's beginning to end and covers so many things, right? Things that I think a lot of people don't consider at the forefront of recovery, like housing, employment, uh, family, right? These are things that can sometimes be periphery uh, when we think about what's needed for recovery, but are actually so core to someone's recovery journey. But they have to, of course, be done in a way that is responsive to the culture, right? And to the community of people that, um, that come from it. So that totally makes sense. And I appreciate that. Yes, it's true. We have to continue, like we speak of this golden thread. That golden thread has to follow through from the beginning all the way through to their journey. And this needs to be holistic. It needs to be supportive. It needs to be engaging. They need to be able to participate. And you need to leave individuals with their dignity. You can't have them feeling like they're just a checkbox for you. And they're just always triggered and traumatized. Absolutely. Absolutely. You got to support people where they're at and lift them up and not push them down, right? Uh, and it's unfortunate reality that too many in our community um, do think that pushing down is an effective approach. Uh, but we know, we do know different <laughs> based on yes. our own experiences, right? Well, you know, it sounds like you've done a lot of incredible work over Jones Community Solutions and you're addressing some really needed uh, issues for our community. I just wanted to see, you know, do you have like a, a most proud moment at your work at Jones Community Solutions, something that you did that 
you know, that you really think um, helped address some of those needs or some of those gaps in services? I'm very proud of all of the work we do. I'm, I'm very proud of my team. I have the most diverse training team. Um, they're, they're absolutely outstanding. Uh, we, we're, it was designed purposely to provide that relatable resource, you know, uh, for the community. So very, very diverse BIPOC training team. Um, I'm very proud of the work we do translating the, the, the certified peer counselor manual into Spanish so we can provide trainings into the Latin community. Um, I'm very proud of the mentoring, the mentor hub my wife has started. We have been able to um, add six more trainers of color to the state healthcare authorities training list, uh, mentoring them all throughout the year. And I'm also very proud right now of uh, the work my wife and I are doing professors. We're working, we're teaching at Olympic College and we're doing our higher education, our continued education trainings at Highline College. And I also, besides mentoring, I have an apprentice. My apprentice now is in college, putting up through college. He has a full-time job and he's getting his CNA, he's getting his college and he's working and he's of color and he's the only one. And I'm very proud of how happy he is. I love that so much. It's just beautiful to hear that um, you're uplifting your community and giving these opportunities to, you know, one, get expertise and knowledge out to the community, but also, you know, these sorts of trainings that can be uh, very empowering, right? And so I wanted to, you know, uh, pick up on where you mentioned there that uh, you're actually teaching at Highline College. Uh, that's very exciting. What what subject uh, are you and your wife teaching? We hold our uh, our certified peer counselor trainings now. We're hosting oh. them like every two weeks and we do it at the campus. And to me, it's very important to provide that at the learning atmosphere. Highline campus is very beautiful and peaceful. It's, it's overlooking the sound. It's, it's gorgeous. Um, but also a lot of the individuals with the lived experience that we've been through, they haven't had the opportunities to either finish school, go to college, finish whatever it was. But to be in that environment, it really uplifts them. They're proud of themselves. Um, it's not like just going to an office and sitting in a room somewhere or sitting in some big empty space where just a bunch of people are. They're actually in an educational environment. And I am very intentional about providing that because the atmosphere is what's the most important when you're trying to support individuals. You want them to have interest and you want them to be proud of themselves. And I'll try to give every opportunity to do so. That's awesome. I mean, it seems like the setting there uh, is perfect learning environment for people that want to be peers and get to develop those skill set a little bit further. Um, so that's awesome that you provide that training for our community. And so shifting a little bit, I want to talk, uh, I know you mentioned a bit about, you know, the effects of trauma and kind of the impact that that had on your own recovery journey. So I just wanted to expand on that a little bit. Uh, how do you feel the effects of trauma from the past and present interact with one's behavioral health? It, you respond differently, you know, um, I, um, I see my diagnosis is, um, PTSD, um, hypervigilance and severe depression. And that's a lot of trauma from my past, but I still deal with that daily. A lot of, a lot of things happen, um, constantly that keeps me on edge and it's just society, a lot of things happen 
Um, I have children, you know, I have a, a, I have a son, a teenage son, and being a young black man in America is very frightening. Um, and I have a lot of concerns about my children that just no matter how perfect my life you may think it to be, I'm a black man in America. I mean, as soon as I walk out my door, I'm on edge until I able to make it back and hopefully close the door behind me and be safe again. Um, and that's from the past. It's, it's also from the present. You know, just watching the news and seeing these wars, um, seeing how uh, just people are divisive over religions, um, um, just try, you know, people are dying over a religion or a race or a place. And that affects me because I don't just live in my little world. I, I help everyone. And, and there have been individuals in my trainings from South America. I've had individuals from the Ukraine. I had an individual in my class that was in the Ukraine virtually during a war. I have concerns about the people that we support. Um, so just me focusing on my issues is one thing. And then I have an entire community that I support. I have individuals outside of other communities that I support. Um, I have loved ones far and wide, and that concerns me. Um, the state of the times these days and what's going on. Um, we have tons of shootings and a lot of um, racist attacks on individuals. We have a lot of young individuals, young, young black men and women being brutalized, murdered, missing. Um, so daily I'm triggered and traumatized on, on edge, worrying about my babies. I have, you know, I'm here with you, but my kids are at school. Hopefully everything's okay. You know, hopefully there's no mass shooting somewhere. And one of my loved ones, family members is assaulted or something. God forbid anything happens like that. You know, just being on edge. I try to support, um, everyone else in that field. But when you're a counselor, it's hard for you to get counseling. You know, when you spend a lot of time absorbing everyone else's trauma during the day, you have to really be um, focused on how you're going to obtain your self-care. And, and you really have to take your take time and get your care. Self-care is very important. Two things I tell everyone on my team, self-care and safety first. You have to. That's so true. I um, I really identify with that. I often feel like I can't help other people unless I first help myself, right? And make sure that my basic needs are taken care of. Um, so that totally makes sense. And I also really appreciate you, know, you mentioning how recovery really is like a lifelong journey, right? We often think that it's just stabilizing a crisis and then it's over. But, you know, people like ourselves who are in recovery, we, we know different, right? We know that it is something that is truly a lifelong journey and also you know, we're constantly being impacted by things beyond our control, right? Structure, current events. Um, but often those things get ignored, right? When we're trying to get help for those behavioral health challenges. So I really appreciate you, um, you know, discussing that. And, you know, another thing that you mentioned there was also kind of like how you avoid burnout, right? Or you started talking about that. And I would love to hear a little bit more, like, what is your strategy, especially, you know, as a black man in America, and also dealing with being in behavioral health recovery, like, how do you avoid you know, burnout in this space specifically? That's tough. Everyone is going to burn out. And this field is a very high turnover rate. Um, the 
what keeps me going is my passion and my care for the community. And it's not just like the black community. When I say the community, it's just in just the community at large that needs support in behavioral health, mental health, substance use disorder health. But also in recovery, it's not just being recovering from drugs or something like that, right? People could have had a car accident. I'm still recovering from, I'm a latchkey kid. My grandparents raised me. I'm still recovering from raising myself in the doggone streets. You know, I'm 50 years old. I never had one single day as an independent adult. I've been raising children ever since I was a child. My youngest is 12. So maybe I'll start working on recovery when I'm about 60 and I have time for me. And, you know, that's the reality of it. Um, It's so much going on that I just have to kind of, I look forward to providing this work. Um, And me being burnt out, that happens. Um, This here, I, I do judo. I'm a sensei. I'm a Shodan sensei. Um, I help train kids with cadets and Team USA. Um, I box. I martial arts. Um, So when I'm in that space, I nothing else is on my mind. I I I do a lot of meditating, um, but when I am trying to exercise or just anything physical. I have to be physical. I have to be as physical as possible because what I deal with every day is loss and pain. So me running, lifting weights, pushing hard, pulling, it it really kind of releases a lot of that. Um, And that's a necessity. It's something that a lot of people don't associate uh, those things daily, which can cause a lot of trauma. That can build up on you. I don't need those things to sit on me until another week. I have to, like you said, I have to be the best me that I can possibly be. That doesn't mean I'm always going to be a hundred percent, but I'm going to doggone try. I got to try because there's people count on me. People need me. I'm a resource. I have to be, I have to be a good resource. Um, And one of the gaps that we intentionally try to fill is having someone there consistently and burnout is, is, it's, it's going to happen, but I have a team. We, we make sure we work in pairs. We make sure that we get a tap out. We make sure we give each other time off when needed and support each other when, we, when it's needed. But if we burn out, then we're part of that problem that I made my solutions about. Jones Community Solutions is about having someone there always because I've had to tell my story 15 times one day with three different people, I go back and that person's not there. I got to meet a new person. I got to, that's not cool. That's traumatic. So what's important to us is to be consistent. Yeah, burnout is tough, but we have to figure out a way to be safe and healthy at all times. Because if I just burn out and I'm not here tomorrow, I'm not helpful. And I'm actually causing harm to individuals who trust me, who, who they spend their time telling me, intimate things about themselves and their families. They're asking for support. One of the hardest things to ever do is ask for support. And if someone comes and they ask and they need that help, I will do them more harm allowing myself to burn out. Not Absolutely. Um, definitely seems like a huge challenge is, you know, just avoiding further harm, right? When somebody's in a super vulnerable space and um, they need help, right? And I think, you know, managing burnout is so key because, you know, if you don't, right, you risk, you know, creating so much harm and trauma when 
you know, that precious window of willingness of change is um, taken away, right? So that that totally makes sense. Um, also, you talked a little bit about, you know, uh, your approach being a physical approach to managing um, burnout. And uh, I think that's, that's really beautiful. I think in the West, we um, often ignore how the mind and the body are part of the same thing, right? They're not, there's no arbitrary separation. So it totally makes sense that you know, as we deal with mental and, and other, um, you know, challenges kind of up here that our, you know, body stores a lot of that anxiety and stores a lot of that stress. And by, you know, physically exerting ourselves, we, we get to kind of spend some of that. Right. Um, so I think that's a really great suggestion and, um, I'm hopeful that people listening out there, uh, can hopefully adopt some of those, uh, recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, get some of that tension out of your neck and your shoulders, you know, move around. For sure, for sure. And especially if you go a little bit without doing any kind of exercise or stretch and then you just jump into stretching. Oh, my goodness, it feels so good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did that the other day. <laughs> so, um, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, uh, institutional discrimination and you kind of talked a little bit about that in your experiences. But I would love to hear um, what you believe are some of the root causes behind intergenerational trauma it's systemic it's been it's it's the policy um i don't like to play the blame game but we've had a lot of presidents and none of them done it did anything um, we have president now that's in office and were voted in to do certain things and have not done any of it you know like the policing the support with the the, the black and brown communities um, the policy is just, it's absolutely ridiculous to say that we can't invest and support those right here, right here with us that we know for a fact had issues, but we can fly across the seas and overnight support wars, not homelessness, wars. They're not going over there to support substance use, mental health, homelessness, anything. They're supporting wars. And they're spending our tax dollars. That's all policy. Can't our tax dollars support our issues that we put our legislators in office for? But in return, they turn around and they do other things that doesn't help us. I'm still concerned about, you know, I'm Creole, right? I still have concerns about my Haitian brothers and sisters or my, or my black and brown family members south of this border that they're just ignored and now we're helping everyone else immediately, boom, overnight, we're there for you. But uh, the people that look like me are going through the same things and we're not getting any of that support. We're not even getting any of that consideration. Uh, we're not even, there's not even a conversation. Uh, only when it's ballot time, only when it's time to vote, we'll wait till the uh, turn is almost up to act like we'll do something because we want your votes again, which in return makes us feel like the checkbox that we know that you always treat us at, we're not of importance. It's, it's, it's sickening to see what's happening today with these two wars that have nothing to do with us. And we are not getting any support. We have so much homelessness in these streets and so much drug abuse. We can easily be better supportive in America if we just took a tenth of what they've given away overnight. Uh, the uh, for war, I don't. I don't support war. Um, I don't support separations of race. There's a human race, and we need to be human 
and take care of everyone. Um, all I see daily is policy failure and discrimination. And that's very triggering and it's very traumatic to know that I have people south of this border that are not having any opportunity at all to be better. But we go out our way to help others. I mean, it's possible. It's it's absolutely possible. It's it, it can be done. I'm watching it take place overseas in two other countries right now while we're being neglected. It's policy. Even if it was on a national level, it could be on a statewide, it could be on a very local level. It's all policy. We can do things at a local level and we can do things at a national level. But it just doesn't trickle down the way that we 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 expect it to. You get our votes, and we don't get the support. So, I mean, imagine how traumatic I feel when I have to worry about my son going to school. I have all of these young black men that have been killed by police, just shot. There was some uh, unfortunate situation where some Jewish kid, I believe, or or Islamic kid, was stabbed twenty six times, and his mom was attacked. We can do better as a nation, and and it starts at the policy level. That's just the bottom line. We can't always blame a community or a person when you have lawmakers ignoring the community and those people. I think that is a very powerful point. Um, and I think one thing that really stuck with me is that, you know, you're really hitting at here uh, that there's a lack of a political will, right, within our leadership um, for transformative domestic policy change, right? Um, right? We're just kind of doing the bare minimum and the bare minimum is woefully not enough, right? And we're, we're not even doing that so great anymore. Um, but, you know, you also started hinting at kind of what a better system would look like. So, um, you know, building on that, you know, what kind of policy change do you think is most needed to create a more trauma-informed and equitable behavioral health system here in Washington state? I think you need to have more Jones Community Solutions. I think you need to have more organizations of color and connect them and work with them. We do have some very, very wonderful businesses and organizations and leaders and groups of color that we don't even know. We haven't met each other, we're siloed. Um, that's by design, unfortunately, and it's not by, we don't design that. That's a systemic design. Um, we need to fix that because that's keeping the communities um, apart and unhealthy. We could receive a lot better support with our mental health if we had more relatable resources instead of having just a few that's designated and you're obligated to be there. We need to open up more community organizations and support them better. We need to find, we need to intentionally go out there and find those leaders. That's what we do. My organization intentionally goes and finds those leaders, gives them the trainings they need, give them the support, mentorship, whatever they need, and help them build. We also do a lot of um, business development and support, you know, of communities of color. So we can't have those resources. Just having one person say, Javon, you did good. 
That's not helpful to Javon or Javon's community. That person should go tell somebody else Javon did good. You know, they're not doing me a favor by stroking my ego because I already know that's what you're doing, <laughs> right? Hmm. So if I have five people today come say, hey, Javon, you did good. You did nothing for me or my community. Those five people could have told five other people how good Javon is, and that's how we make change. Making change by stroking my ego is a waste of time. Go tell somebody else how good Jones Community Solutions is. Go tell somebody else who those other communities of colors are and those leaders and how good they are so we can find out more about them and work together and provide that. Maybe we wouldn't be so siloed if you all didn't show our egos. Go tell somebody else. Well, it sounds like one of the ways you're suggesting of uh, breaking down these silos is, you know, active and intentional recruitment of, you know, leaders of the communities most impacted by, um, you know, these uh, structural oppression, institutional discrimination and racism and violence. Um, so that that absolutely makes sense. And also, of course, you know, there being organizations like like Jones Community Solutions that can provide those resources and training and one stop mm -hmm. shop for for all that. But. Um, I'm also wondering if you have any other thoughts about, you know, what can be done to truly break down those silos that exist? Because as we mentioned earlier, you know, while we should all be friends, right, we often are competing for the same funds and stuff like right. that. So um, what, what do you feel can be done given that that structure is the way it is? I think they need to stop having individuals compete so much. They have enough money. Um, they can designate specific things to native populations. They designate specific things to you know, to uh, military, you know, installation. they have specific designations or we just need to make more specific designations. You don't, uh, I don't worry too much. We do a lot of competing, but in my space, I do a lot of sole source justification because there's no one doing what I'm doing. And it, I would like for them to, because I, it's just one me. And we're in Western Washington. What about Central? What about Eastern? We work statewide, but we can't be there every day. Um, and and the funding, the funding needs to be better. They need to support organizations like to uplift smaller organizations. You need to help them with help them. Um, they'll need startup capital. They'll need some type of funding where it's not everything. Contracts are always reimbursable, which is very hard on small businesses because the business has to cover everything that business has over that business has payroll rent internet you know utilities all type of bills and they're going to take care of their employees and then wait for reimbursement that's 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 tough unless that organization has a, a good nest egg somewhere hidden to cover that that's going to be um, close to impossible to survive in the extended point of time because the disbursements aren't always on time, you know, and that's policy as well. It's that's all policy. These, you know, you run across um, issues as a small business and as a small business of color um, in contracting, you know, um, a lot of the. Well, some of the bigger places that we contract with, they want to pay you up to 30 days after the contract, right? So if I work a month, I pay my staff everything for a month out of my pocket, then I got a whole nother month to wait to get reimbursed from just that one month. I'm two months in the hole. Yeah. Where do you find that money? But that on the other end of contracting, they don't offer up to 
you know, contract, you can get up to 30% to start and then it can be up to 30 days payout on the end. Right in those two things. But in the state, they don't do that. We don't get the opportunity up front to have anything to support. You have to have that capital in hand already. And if you're going to do a program and support individuals, you have to have a team. That team has to be paid. That team, you have to have a place. You have to have space. All that comes in effect. That's actually, that's one of the harder things of providing the services is, is staying afloat. So, you know, I, I am a behavioral health agency and counselor, but I have to do my CEO job a lot more than the counseling side because I have to keep us afloat. I have to make sure that we're here and the team is paid correctly because once again, that allows them to show up the best that they can to be supported. I can't have a, a team that's not being paid, you know, and no office, but no computer. I mean, we have to be a viable entity. We can't just right. be like, hey, this is what I do and then just... Hopefully it works. We, we're, we're, we're real business here. Um, so the policies and the contracting and who gets the monies, you know, like sometimes it seems like they just penny pinch with the BIPOC organizations and say, here, you know, just like a piece. I feel a piece a lot of times, you know, like they're just yeah. checking their box. And, you know, like, I don't want to feel that way. I want to, I want to have the opportunity to have big contracts like the other organizations that I'm outperforming. I'm literally outperforming organizations that get bigger contracts than me. I am having classes pass with 100% passing rates. I am teaching. I am mentoring. I have other organizations coming into my training so they can learn. And they want to respectfully watch how we do it. But we don't get the big contracts. The ones that we're outperforming does. That's horrible policy making right there. I mean, if you want results, I'm results driven. You're not going to get any results like that. You're just going to have a pattern that's going to cause the same gaps over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, really hearing here, you know, there just needs to be overall more funding directed to, you know, supporting uh, smaller behavioral health organizations, right? Just getting started and providing these urgently needed uh, community supports, right? But at the same time, the way we actually fund people is or fund organizations through the state uh, is entirely messed up. Right. You know, this reimbursement process definitely seems to favor people with existing resources and privilege and not, you know, uh, new community organizations and people trying to serve communities that historically have been um, given the wrong hand, you know, from uh, dominant society. Right. So um, I just really I really appreciate you walking us through a little bit more of what that process looks like. You know, as a small business owner um, in this space. So, you know, thank you so much, Siobhan, for, for sharing that and, and all the things that you've shared today. Um, you know, before we go, I, I really would love to just give you an opportunity. Um, if you anything else that you'd like to um, talk about or share with our audience before we go today. Um, you know, just, you know, just check us out, man. Look us up. www.jonescommunitysolutions.com. I mean, we're on Facebook. We do a lot with everyone. And like I said, if you can do anything, if you can do one thing, just tell somebody else about us. Don't tell me. I get that a lot. And I thank you, too. But just tell some other people. Well, we definitely did that today, I hope, uh, with talking oh, yes. about the work you did. And I hope all the people listening out there definitely get connected with Jones Community Solutions. Learn about the amazing work that they do over there. Um, you know, receive some of the help there that they have to offer if you're interested. All that great stuff. Well, Awesome. Well, thank you uh, so much again, Javon, for opening up about your recovery journey. 
And just we are just so grateful to have leaders like you and our community at the helm. Um, now we're just going to quickly segue into some recovery news that we have for everyone. Recovery Advocacy Day 2024 is now scheduled for Thursday, January 25th, and we'll be hosting in person again down in Olympia. Recovery Advocacy Day, or RAD as we like to call it, is the Washington Recovery Alliance's annual citizen action event where we bring together hundreds of people in the recovery community from across Washington state to engage their lawmakers in conversations about legislative changes that would improve our behavioral health system. We concentrate our community's power to advocate for things like recovery coaching, employment supports, behavioral health workforce development, and peer support services. Please visit the Washington Recovery Alliance and King County Recovery Coalition websites for more information and to save your spot. Thank you so much, Siobhan, for sharing your insight and experiences with our community today. And we're also very grateful for our wonderful production team at WorkPTP. Until we convene again, goodbye, folks. I'm Heather Venegas. Thanks for listening to King County Recovery Conversations, a place to celebrate recovery and help break the stigma of addiction and mental health. If you are a loved one or experiencing substance use disorder, problem gambling, and or a mental health challenge, please visit the Washington Recovery Helpline at warecoveryhelpline.org for resources and a 24-hour helpline. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Special thanks to our production team at Work P2P Studios. If you'd like to share your recovery journey with us, please email me at heather at kcrecovery.org. We'll be back in two weeks with another story of hope, resilience, and healing.